Freedom School. Um, some pretty interesting stuff going on today, so thanks for picking us. Um, my name is Megan Dunn. I'm a graduate student here. Um, I graduated here undergrad in the spring. Um, now I'm finishing up my master's in political science and nonprofit management. Um, my name is Liesl Schwartz. I'm the sustainability manager for Villanova University. Uh, and I'm going to start off the presentation. Oh, I'm going to start off the presentation uh, by covering what exactly environmental justice is. Has anyone studied this in their class before? This is something okay, it's kind of familiar with. Um, the title kind of gives it away, but we'll go into more depth as to what it means, and then we'll kind of we'll tie some relations to what environmental justice is to Catholic social teaching and sustainability, which is what I focus on. Um, and then give some examples both here at home and, and overseas of environmental justice or injustice. How many of you are here for a class today? It's okay. Cool. You're still excited to be here, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, awesome. And bring Always bring Oh, next slide. All right, so the EPA defines environmental justice as environmental justice is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, nationality, uh, and or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulation, and policies. There's a lot of multiple syllable words in there. Um, so you know, basically, how I think of uh, environmental justice is a combination of social justice and environmental protection, the idea that there's either environmental degradation, um, and as a result, there is social injustice um, uh, due to that environmental degradation. Uh, all right, and then, um, there, so the environment, when we talk about the environment, we normally think of good things, right? We think of water, we think of air, we think of food, uh, shelter. These are things that the environment provides for us. But now that we're in an industrial age, the, environmental, the environment also provides burdens apart from these benefits such as pollution, toxic waste, noise waste. Many times this is a result of our own actions. And the idea of environmental justice is we have to balance these benefits, clean air, water, and these burdens, pollution, and toxic waste amongst all of us, and that not one portion of the population, whether it's a minority uh, of different uh, of different minorities, should be burdened with these with these environmental pollutants. Um, and so, how this started, um, like many movements such as this, they came about um, in the 1900s, in the 1980s, in Warren County, North Carolina. Um, BC, CB landfills dumped laden oil on the side of the road late at night to avoid recycling costs. This doesn't sound totally out of the realm of possibility. Um, so what they decided to do is they were going to build a landfill for these types of chemicals, um, but they decided to put this landfill in a neighborhood that had a high African-American population. And the justification was, well, they're minorities, they're uneducated, they're not going to fight for their rights, they're not going to fight to have, not have this landfill in their neighborhood. So we can do this and there won't be you know, a lot of noise made about it. But they were wrong. Um, this neighborhood actually did fight back um, and the landfill was still unfortunately developed in the area. And so, the, and so this is our first example of what environmental justice is. This doesn't mean that there wasn't one before this, but this is when the movement started really um, putting a name um, to what they were working on. So uh, there's different types of environmental justice, and this is really, you know, getting to the more scholarly part of this. Uh, so I'll go through it somewhat quickly. Uh, procedural uh, environmental justice. Uh, this is the idea that when policies or politics that was meant to help actually does the opposite. 
Um, so a lot of times we see this with funding to help uh, clean up some of these pollution sites. The funding tends to go to areas that have higher affluent uh, populations, or typically whiter uh, populations, instead of these other populations that may be of a more minority descent. Um, and so while they meant to do good, they, they still prolong this, um, this environmental injustice. Uh, social, like in the last example, the use of populations uh, that lack status, race, and capital, uh, you take advantage of them because they're easily taken advantage of. Uh, geo geographical, the idea that poor minority groups tend to be in less desirable geographical areas um, and that that results in pollution and exploitation of those areas. Now whether the minorities came first and the, the pollution came after or vice versa, there are examples of both, um, but both of those fall under that type of, of injustice. And then this new one, um, which relates more closely with sustainability, is climate refugees. Um, and it's the idea that people are forced to relocate because of rising sea levels, storm intensity, higher occurrence of extreme storms or droughts uh, as a result of climate change. And so, um, unfortunately, it's very hard to directly link a storm like Katrina to climate change. It's not easy to say, all right, well, Katrina was a result of higher carbon emissions in the atmosphere. Um, but we can say that these occurrences of storms, the higher level of occurrences, does have some relation um, and that the rising sea level is more directly um, tied to climate change. And we're seeing more and more of this um, around the world. So why, why do people feel the right to do this? Um, the first two are very uh, business-oriented economic reasonings, but that competition will make up for the injustice and environmental degradation, and that markets will take care of the injustice themselves in the magical market. Um, we like to think that, but unfortunately, not always is that the case. Um, people do find ways to take advantage of, of those who are less um, fortunate. Um, and then economics outweigh environmental and social needs. Uh, this sounds pretty clear-cut, like no, 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 that's not how we do it, that's not how we should do business, that's not how we should live our lives. Uh, and I think most executives would agree with that, but when you get into a situation where it becomes an economics versus you know, the well-being of others, sometimes it's harder to see that clear line. Uh, and we see that happening in um, businesses around the world, including America. Um, and then uh, the other last justification is that they pay them for their injustices. Uh, the uh, clear example of this is our, our electronic waste. When our phones are no longer hip and um, in fashion, we send them away to be recycled. Hopefully they're being sent to a place that does it safely um, with the proper precautions, but a lot of times, especially in the earlier part of this decade were sent to third world countries where children would take apart these, these technologies and, and were exposed to a lot of harmful chemicals, but our justification was we paid them for it. So it's okay because they got some money. And that's not always a good justification. Many times that's not a good justification. Um, so this quote really scared me when I saw it um, in, my doing, in my research for this presentation. So the World Bank, is everyone familiar with the World Bank? do development in durable countries, ideally to help them. Uh, so their chief, chief economist in 1991, when asked um, why uh, they are increasing trade of toxic waste and pollution, including industries in developing worlds, his response was, well, some developing countries with low populations uh, have comparatively little pollution. Citizens in developing countries already have a low life expectancy, and because they are poor, Further harming their health makes sounder economic sense than harming the health of those with higher wages. 
skin just crawls. I can't believe someone would say that. But so this is the mindset of people making these decisions. And this is why we see so many awful examples of environmental injustice. Um, one example, you know, I picked this because the movie, who has seen Aaron Brockovich? Yeah, I know it's old now. Uh, it's really good, actually. I mean, if you like those types of movies, it's, I thought it was really good, even if you don't like uh, Julia Roberts, which I know a lot of people don't. Uh, so, Hinkley, California, in the Mojave Desert, uh, was, was the site of this uh, incident. Uh, Pacific Gas and Electric from 1952 uh, to 1966 was contaminating the groundwater by storing hexaflint chromium, I think is how you say it, uh, which is an anti-rust agent in unlined ponds, which basically means it's just a hole ground and there's nothing stopping it from leaching into the soil, groundwater, etc. Um, which of course we don't allow to happen today. In most cases we have laws against that, but there are situations where that's not always kept kept up. Uh, this agent, this uh, chemical is actually a known carcinogen. Uh, and in the height of this investigation, they saw levels as high as uh, 550 parts per billion in the water system. The minimum or the maximum drinking level is 50 parts per billion. So clearly, uh, an issue. And as a result, there were 196 cases of cancer in the reported area of, of uh, contamination. And 30 years later, which is crazy, 30 years later, in 1996, a settlement was finally made uh, for the highest, largest amount ever in the United States for a direct action lawsuit of $333 million. Um, which we think, okay, great, awesome. Justice has been served. It worked, um, but not 100%. They still have issues to this day. Um, unfortunately, you can't just build a wall around a groundwater system. It leach it, it continues to leach out. Uh, and at the time of the original case, the radius of the plume or the affected area was 1.75 miles in radius. It's now about seven miles. Um, so the whole town has been drastically affected. People are leaving the area. Jobs are um, are hard to find. Uh, schools are shutting down. It's you know people are obviously still being sick. So this is still an issue, um, and we hope that issues like this don't happen today anymore. We think you know we have environmental laws. This shouldn't be an issue, but an issue is something that is very relevant to Pennsylvania, such as hydraulic fracturing. This may also prove to be a similar issue in the future. We don't know all the effects of this in, of this action of extracting natural gas from the earth in this way will have on, on the landscape, both the top, what we can see, um, but also down below in the water system. Um, there's a lot of questioning going on right now. We, we might not know until it's too late. Um, so that also is maybe our, our generation's example of this. Um, okay, so how does this relate to Catholic social teaching? The sun's all good and dandy, but we are here at Villanova University in Augustinian College. Um, so what is, how does this relate to us and what we learn here? Um, so the seven themes are life and dignity of a human person, that every person is precious and people are more important than things. I think this kind of speaks directly to environmental justice and what we're looking to prevent uh, with that. The call for family, community, and participation seek together the common good and well-being of all, especially the poor and vulnerable. Again, focusing on those who are less able you know, to defend themselves, potentially. Rights and responsibilities, so human rights are to be protected. 
uh, above all other things, you know, nothing is more valuable than the right of a human. Um, options for the poor and vulnerable, put the needs of the poor and vulnerable first. The dignity and of work and the right of workers, uh, that the economy must serve the people and not the other way around. A lot of times that ends up what happening, ends up happening. Um, and that the rights of the workers must be respected. Solidarity, love thy neighbor no matter what their nationality, race, economic status, or I ideological preference, maybe. And then last, care for God's creation. We are stewards of creation, protect the people and the planet. Hopefully, you can see a lot of similarities in what we're talking about with environmental justice and these Catholic social teachings. And what I'm also gonna now do is bring in sustainability, so a third level, since that's what I focus on. Oh. Sorry, that's not, the circle's not supposed to be there yet, but sorry. Um, so sustainability, who has heard that word before? Who knows what it means? Or like feels they're comfortable with the idea? Yeah, a little, okay. All right, awesome. So sustainability, the definition is development that meets the needs of the present without the compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So what is a need? What do you need? Resources. Resources, awesome. Any examples? Uh, water, food, and air. Okay, awesome. Shelter. Shelter, great. Anyone else? No. Yep, protection, great. So yeah, so sustainability, is about making sure that we have these needs for, that people need available for future generations. So a lot of times, maybe you've heard sustainability and think, okay, we gotta protect a polar bear, you know, out in some cold tundra area. Um, yes, sustainability is about protecting the environment and therefore protecting those creatures that live on the planet. But the reason we protect the environment and the reason it's important when we talk about sustainability is we as people rely on the environment. Just as we talked about with environmental justice, the fact that when you pollute these areas, people have less resource and less ability to care for themselves. So sustainability is seen as a three-legged stool, or in this case, a three-circle Venn diagram, um, and with three different main areas, the environment, social, and economic. And I kind of put environmental justice in between environmental and social, um, but really, when we think about environmental justice and why it keeps occurring, a lot of times it's for profit, it's for economic need or perceived need, and the idea that economic is also included when we talk about environmental justice as well. Um, and you might wonder why economics is in there, because we think of economics as like this evil being when we talk about issues like this, that there's always the bad example. Well, first of all, there are good examples of businesses doing the right thing, and we'll talk about some of those a little later. Um, but also, when we think about sustainability and our needs in the future, we also need to be able to make a living, to support our family, and that includes economics. Um, and so that needs to be a part of the discussion, even though a lot of times it tends to be that elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. Um, so, what are you wearing today? What brand of clothing? Anyone know? J. Crew. J. Crew? Skirt. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I like J. Crew. Yeah. Nike. Nike? All right. Yeah. Who doesn't wear Nike here? I like see the shoes everywhere. North Face. North Face? All right. Yeah. They're warm. They're nice. Timberland. Timberland. All right. Also very warm. Okay. So clearly it's winter. Um, so here are some brands that um, are known users of sweatshops. Uh, some of these surprise me. L.L. Bean being the biggest one that surprised me. I always think of that as like the granola, cruncher, hippie. 
company that sells outdoor equipment. Um, I personally am a huge fan of Gap. Very unfortunate. Um, they are known. They are pretty well known abuser of this. Um, so this is just this is just to bring a little home. Um, so sweatshops, for those of you who are not super familiar, um, they all vary in the injustices that they cause, whether it's social, environmental, or economic. Um, they provide low wages. Workers have to work very long hours in poor and unsafe working conditions. Um, there are little to no worker benefits. Child labor laws are non-existent in many cases. Uh, verbal, physical, and sexual abuse happen on a ritual occurrence. And we, as consumers, don't see any of that when we walk into the beautifully lit store with all the beautiful colors and fabrics and fashions of the season. I am a just as guilty as anyone else. Um, so we don't see any of these things until tragedy strikes. Um, so this, I, I had no idea about this fire um, before I did research on this. So Bangladesh has been in the news recently for um, the building collapse, which we'll cover in a minute. But a year earlier, or not even, months earlier, in 2012, um, there was a fire. And the alarms went off, and the factory workers were told to stay in their place, that it was just a drill, not to worry. And then they realized that it wasn't a drill, that there was actually a fire, and 112 people perished in that building. Um, and two major companies that were sourcing uh, clothing from that particular factory was Gap and Walmart. Um, and the, the union, or the, not, they don't have unions there, but the workers tried to put together the safety agreement afterwards to try to help prevent something like this happening again. And the companies did not agree to sign it, and they came up with their own agreement that had little to no transparency uh, in it. So basically did nothing but sign a piece of paper uh, for, the, for the sake of it. Um, so here are some pictures from, from that fire. As you can see, I mean, it's absolutely devastating. That's, Impressive fire, um, and obviously a lot of suffering occurred because of that. Um, so the building collapse. Have all of you heard about this? This happened last year, springtime. Yeah, um, it's pretty big news. At least I thought so. It actually happened on my birthday, which is awful. Um, for me personally, I'm very upset about that. But um, again, in Bangladesh, uh, cracks have been discovered in the building, and this is a. It was a large building. And they had shops on the bottom level, like any you know, regular development we see here um, in America. And the workers in the shops had been told to not come to work the next day because they discovered these cracks in the, in the walls that you know, were questionable on this, the sturdiness of the building. So they were told not to come back. But the garment workers were told they have to come to work. Yeah, they, can't, they can't forfeit a day of work. Um, and as we know, the building did collapse. Over 1,100 people died. And over 250 or 2,500 people uh, were injured in that crash. Um, and you know, part of me wonders, like, if you knew about the cracks, why would you come to work? Like, why would anyone do that? Why would they risk their lives to come to work to make pennies for the day? Um, but they don't have anything else. Like, there is nothing else in that country that the garment industry is way more than the majority of the jobs in that country. And so if you don't work there, you don't work anywhere. Um, and that's you know, why people do it, why they continue to work there. So these are pictures, for those of you who may not have seen images. This one I saw, oh my god, you really cannot yeah. see this. Okay. This I mean, it's tragic. Um, but uh, I'm sure we can make the presentation available later if you want. But uh, 
what, we're, what we see here is you know, two, two people, one trying to protect the other one, and it's not working. Um, but it's, you can't even see it in this picture, but the, the male in the image um, has a tear of blood coming out of his eye, and you know, the idea that it's just like it's so touching and so humble. Uh, you know, these are real people and you know, with real feelings and, and concerns. Um, and this is another thing that I had no idea about. So in Bangladesh, uh, what they do is they dye the fabric, they make it, well they make it into fabric, they dye it, and then they make it into a shirt or pants or whatever it happens to be. Um, and we don't think about the dyeing part of the industry so much, um, but it has a huge effect on the environment. So basically what they do is they dye everything and then they throw whatever leftover dye there is into the river canal system because a wastewater treatment facility is too expensive, um, so this is cheap, just throw it in the water. So the, the locals joke they know what's in fashion based off of the color of the river. Um, I have pictures that you probably won't be able to see, but it, like rivers are different colors. They're not a normal color at all. It's completely dyed. Um, and it's actually very, it's not, it's not good for you. It's toxic, obviously. Um, agriculture and the fishing supplies are affected by this. Um, and children especially are affected. A lot of their schools are located right along the canal systems and they get sick and faint many times because of the strength of the odor. Um, they do have environmental laws there, but they don't enforce them, again, because this is their only industry. And so if the government starts cracking down on this, they're afraid these companies will go somewhere else. Um, that one's blue, blue, kind of purple. This one's red, and then that's them dumping it into the water system. Um, I apologize. Um, okay, so my last example about shirts, because I know you're probably tired of hearing about how awful our clothing is. So NPR, I'm a huge fan of NPR. I take the train every day, hour and a half to get to work, and I listen to a lot of NPR. Um, and they did this great story about a month ago on how you make a shirt, and they went from growing the cotton to having it shipped back to the U.S. and, and brought to their, to their doorstep. Um, and so they started in Mississippi, where they grew the cotton, uh, from GMO seeds, genetically modified uh, seeds. About 80% of all cotton seeds are GMO to date. Uh, I thought it was interesting. So farming, we think of like this industry where there's tons of people working on the fields all day long and picking all this cotton or corn or whatever it is. But nowadays, it's become so mechanical, so overrun with machines, you don't have hardly any workers. So this one farm that they got their, their uh, cotton from produced in that year 13,000 bales of cotton, which I just don't even know what that looks like, but it's got to be huge, for 13 workers and 26 machines. That's it. 13 workers for that much cotton. And they, they had statistics on there about how many shirts that would make. I mean, it's like enough to put a shirt on everyone in New York City. Like, it's, it's huge. Um, so that cotton is sent to Indonesia, where it's made into yarn or thread, um, whichever word you like to use there. Um, and then the men's shirts were made in Bangladesh and the women's in Colombia. There was no real reason why they were in different countries. It just happened to be what was cheapest at the moment to, to make the shirt. They, they split it up. Uh, and so Bangladesh, again, as we've talked about, these people um, work these awful jobs um, with long hours. This one lady they followed works six, hour, six days a week um, and gets $80 a month. That's it. Like, I don't know how anyone lives off of $80 a month. I mean, granted, things are cheaper there, but they're not that much cheaper. Um, they live in very poor conditions, and their working conditions are already very poor. Uh, 
Colombia, on the other hand, they get about four times more money, which is still, you know, not great, but it's a lot better um, than 80 a month. Um, and this one lady that they followed around actually has a side business. She doesn't work the six hour, six days a week. She works a little less, and she's able to save up enough money to start a side business and hopefully build that into something where she doesn't have to work in a factory anymore. And that's the big difference, is in Bangladesh, these people are forced to stay in this industry because they have no other option. Whereas in other places, these industries provide jobs, but they also provide the ability to go somewhere else and do something better with their lives that they would want to do. Most people don't dream of selling my shirt every day. Um, so this is just a breakdown of the cost of where the, the cost of the shirt came from. That's the total cost. That's the image that's on the shirt, just because graphs can be boring. Um, and so the shipping at the top there, that's, that's just shipping when it comes to the port and then it's delivered to your front door. The shipping from the cotton field to Indonesia, Indonesia to Bangladesh, and then Bangladesh back to the Americas is, I believe, this shipping. It's tiny. Um, almost nothing, which is why they do it. It's so cheap to ship overseas in boats. Um, and then when you look here, so the knitting, dyeing, cutting, and sewing, everything that happens in those Bangladesh factories, one dollar for your shirt. That's it. All of that, all of the dye material, all the different machines, the different facilities, all the overhead, all the people, one dollar for your shirt. I mean, it, that's why that's why this is happening is because they can get away with costs like that. Um, so, all right. Okay. Now, bring me to home. Sure. Okay, so like I said in the beginning, I'm a political science student, and I've been interested in social justice. I've taken peace and justice classes. I've been on break trips. You know, I've done all this stuff. Then I had the opportunity to go to Camden this fall, and I was told when I was when I accepted the position to lead the trip that it's an environmentally themed experience. I didn't know a ton about environmentalism. I'm like the least science person you'll ever know. Um, I took a class called Water when I was a sophomore to get my science requirement out of the way. Like that's not real. So I was like, oh, environmentalism. That's just sciency. Like I'm more focused on people. And what I came to realize as I was researching for this experience, preparing for this experience, that is that this wouldn't matter, like we wouldn't care about this if it wasn't affecting people so greatly and so deeply, not only in Bangladesh and Colombia, but right here at home. Camden is about a half an hour away from here, um, and you all are familiar with Camden. When I searched Camden, I mean, again, you can't really see these pictures too well, but these are a few of the first few pictures that pop up when you Google search Camden. Uh, pictures of boarded up houses, foreclosed houses, houses that are falling apart, um, businesses that are boarded up, just not great. And what are some of the things, when you think Camden, what do you think? Anybody? Shout out. Crime? Don't get stuck there at night? You don't want to find yourself in Camden by accident? Don't go outside? Those sort of things. That's what I was familiar with um, when I think of Camden. I grew up in New Jersey. But we aren't just here to talk about environmentalism. We aren't just here to talk about what goes into making a shirt. Um, we're here to talk about environmental justice. And Camden, right across the river, is an absolutely appalling example of environmental injustice, but also a really refreshing example of improvement and renaissance that can, can happen when a community gets together and works. Um, so a profile of Camden, um, there's, as it says up here, it's in 2011, it was the poorest and most violent city in the United States. It's a food desert. There's rampant political corruption. Three mayors in recent memory have been jailed due to corruption causes. Um, the police department, schools, and the city's finances have all been overhauled separately 
by the state of New Jersey within the past decade. Um, so it's sort of along the lines of the Detroit's um, when it comes to sort of city services and city functions. Uh, the median income in Camden is $21,000 a year, which is less than a third of what the New Jersey median income is. And 42.5% of the people in Camden live in poverty. Um, racially, it's 49.6% Hispanic, 42.8% African American, 4% white, and 1% Asian, um, and trace amounts of combinations of the sorts. Um, last week, Governor Chris Christie gave his State of the State address, I was watching it, um, and he said that a few years ago, graduates of the Camden Public School System, only three of them were college ready. I contacted somebody in the Christie office to see what exactly that meant, what does college ready mean, does that mean they went to college, does that mean they took the SAT, what is that? Um, they didn't know, they didn't know where that stat came from, but um, I still believe that it comes from somewhere, and that's appalling three people from the entire public school system of the city are ready for college. Um, this city has 16% unemployment, which is double that of the rest of the state, and it has a daytime population shift that is negative, meaning that when people do go to work, those who aren't unemployed, they're leaving the city. So they're not working to boost the local economy, they're probably working in Philadelphia or Cherry Hill or one of the surrounding areas rather than in the city where they live. Um, so it's not, not a great picture so far. And to make matters worse, citydata.com lists Camden as the number four least safe city in the country and the number 10 least educated city in the country. Um, and those are all those things that sort of confirm what we think about Camden when we think about crime and all of those sort of things going on there. Um, and to highlight my experience, as part of the Break Trip program, we keep journals. And on my first day there, I wrote, forgive me for reading, I just want to get it right. Um, we had the opportunity to drive across town to the grocery store and it was worse than I expected. Bumpy, poorly maintained roads, boarded up houses, drunk people out in broad daylight, empty lots, closed businesses, prostitutes. I felt socioeconomically just as I did in Kingston, Jamaica, and El Salvador, but this time I'm in Camden, 30 minutes from home and in my own state. Um, so it was pretty rough. Uh, and so what I did was I worked with the Center for Environmental Transformation, which I'll get to in a minute, but I wanna talk a little bit more broad, spoke, broad strokes about what's going on in the waterfront south area. Uh, demographically, it has a higher rate of African Americans and Asians and a lower proportion of whites, lower educational attainment, and lower household income than the rest of the city. So as bad as it already was, waterfront south has it even worse. Um, the stars on the map represent the five gardens that the center runs, which again, I'll talk about in a second, but what else is on this map? We have a sewage treatment plant, a wastewater management system, which uh, one of the kids who I met when I was there called the poop factory. That's what it is. That's where, when you flush the toilet, that's where the water goes. And that is where all of the waste from the entire county of Camden, because Camden is a county as well as a city, um, so the broader sort of spectrum of water source use, um, that all flushes down your toilet, down your sinks, into the Camden uh, facility. Down here we have a cement factory that is spewing pollutants into the air at four times the rates that uh, people should be breathing in in a lifetime. Um, in recent years, it has smelled so bad that people have just left. Not that they really had anywhere to go, but they just left the neighborhood because it smelled so bad. Now, when we were there, they managed to cut that smell back down 90%, so I had no idea it smelled like that when I was there, which is great. Um, that's really in large part due to the work that this community has done coming together to fight back against the, envir the environmental injustices that are going on there. 
Um, just off this map to the bottom, there's a landfill. Um, you can see there is a highway designed right here so that people can just bypass the city altogether. That connects the, um, it's the Ben Franklin Bridge to the north and Walt Whitman to the south, I believe. Those are the two bridges. So drivers can just go to Philadelphia, or drivers from Philadelphia can go shop in Cherry Hill, but nobody has to go into Camden at all. Um, and just off the map here is the Delaware River, which used to be sort of how Camden came to be a city at all. Camden wasn't always like this. Camden wasn't always the worst city in the state, one of the worst cities in the country. It used to be a place where uh, 39,000 people, Amanda, do you remember? No. 39,000 people, or some number in that realm, um, were employed by a shipping industry. So similarly to the shipping industry that was ran out of Philadelphia and now makes Philadelphia sort of a rust belt city, that was also a major employer in Camden. But once that sort of shipping industry dried up and left town, all of those people were left without jobs. And that's when it sort of started going downhill. Uh, so the Delaware River is there, which is great, but it's not providing jobs anymore. Um, and it's sort of just not useful to them. Um, environmentally, there's also junkyards, scrap metal yards, and those sort of things all there. And basically how all these things came to be in Camden, they weren't all there when this was an economically thriving location when everybody had those jobs with the shipping industry. It was when the police force sort of ran out of their funds that the state said, we'll take care of your police force if you let us put this cement factory in town. We'll take care of your city finances if you let us use this overtaxed water sewage treatment system in your town. Um, and then one other thing to note when you're looking at this map is there are no grocery stores, no supermarkets, just corner stores and bodegas. Um, so this does not look like a place where most of us would want to live, but there are people who are raising their families there and we met them. Uh, and they have higher rates of asthma, all the sort of things that you would think of when you're living next to all of these pollutants and drinking in all of these pollutants every day. Um, they have some pretty serious public health issues going on in this neighborhood. But not all is lost. So like I mentioned, there are these five gardens. They're run by the Center for Environmental Transformation in the Waterfront South District. Um, and Michael Zier, who is one of the people who works there, said, a change of heart will save the planet, not a change of actions. So while it's all well and good to say we should all recycle, it's all well and good to say we should maybe not try to buy from um, companies that use sweatshops, maybe you'll remember that it's sort of like a New Year's resolution. You work on it for a few weeks, maybe a few months, but eventually you sort of fall back into your old habits. But once you have a meaningful experience that really teaches you these lessons firsthand and has a change an effect on your heart, that's when you'll start to translate your action into more effective action and long-lasting change um, will come of it. The mission of the Center for Environmental Transformation is to educate people into more environmentally responsible way of living on our planet. Um, so they see community as at the absolute center of everything that they do. Um, and as a result of that mission, they have the five gardens. Two of them are pictured here. Um, this garden is the native plant nursery, so they're building, they're planting um, plants that would grow in South Jersey. Um, if we didn't have invasive species and those sort of things. Um, this picture is from their greenhouse, which is in one of their gardens. We are washing potatoes, sweet potatoes, that'll eventually be sold in their farmer's markets. Um, so they have two gardens, two orchards, and the native plant nursery that they run all in just this one neighborhood of Camden. Um, and they have a bunch of programs that sort of get more people involved. So we have the environmental retreats where colleges like Villanova, Widener, um, Newman and other local 
colleges will go for a week or a weekend to stay with them, learn about all these things, meet some people, go out in the gardens and do the work. Also high schools do it over spring break. Um, they have the Junior Farmers Program, where about 10 Camden students a year are, they come to the gardens after school, and rather than going out into the streets where many of the other people go after school and eventually end up dropping out, they go to school, they come here, and then they go home at the end of the day. So it's a really great program for the kids. Um, gets at sustainability for the city. This means that more, maybe more students will come out college ready than before. Um, and they also have Saturday work days once a month. So at the first Saturday of every month, um, they open up the gardens for anybody to come and work in them. And when I've been to them, there have been a combination of community members and outsiders who get to work alongside each other, talk to each other, maintain, uh, build and establish relationships, and it's really mutually beneficial um, to everyone who goes there. And it gets a lot of work done in the gardens, which is great, because they have one full-time farmer on staff, so getting that much manpower out there is really helpful for them. Um, so here's another picture of their gardens. Can't see it. If you leave your email addresses, we'll be able to send you this so you can see some of what we have here. Um, but the products of all their gardens are sold in a farmer's market in the city, which is really important because it's a food desert. So it's one of the best ways for residents of this neighborhood to access fresh produce. Um, and it's sold at a low cost. And they also have cooking classes and demonstrations that they can teach people how to handle these vegetables that other, you know, maybe they didn't grow up cooking them, so now they learn how exactly they should use them. Because it's one thing just to sell a product like Swiss chard, which before that week I didn't even know what that was. Um, but it's another to show, empower them to use it and improve their diets as well. Um, and there's also this stormwater management program. So like I said, there's that sewage treatment facility that is highly overtaxed. So it's a single like pipe system where all of the waste from this entire county is sent to one facility. And that's, it's a really insufficient pipe system. So whenever the storm, like a storm comes through and there's a lot of water being dumped into that system, it'll back up into the homes of people in this waterfront area who are the closest to where that system is. That means raw sewage in your shower. Yeah, not good. Um, so one of the things that they do at the center is they sell these stormwater management barrels. It's just this giant like, trash can sized thing um, that's open on the top and has a spigot on the bottom so that you can collect water rather than just having it run off of the roofs of the city's homes or off asphalt of the streets or the sidewalks. Rather than having that runoff go into that system, it's diverting it and the people who collect that water can use it for pretty much whatever they want other than eating and bathing. You don't want to cook with that water, but um, you can wash your car, wash your dog, water your plants, that sort of stuff. It's a really great way to take some of that water out of that system. Um, and also in their efforts to make some of these more systemic, broader changes to the system, they've started to work with the sewage treatment plant people and change it. So now they've cut back on 90% of the odors that were in the area, um, and they're working on sort of, they. when we were there, we saw a bank come in and plant dozens of trees around the neighborhood. So they're doing, there is a renaissance happening there. When we were there, there was a sense of healing Camden and restoring Camden and overcoming these obstacles, and that really comes back to the sense that when the community comes together, these environmental injustices can be overcome. Um, so that's really what it comes down to with the lessons of Camden. Um, no policy decision should be made without consideration of the human element. The waste, the cement factory that's in the town that's causing all of that those pollution to go into the air, um, the only other 
plant like it, the one that it was modeled after, was built in Ohio, 50 miles away from any other human civilization. So any of those pollutants that are in the air, in the Ohio plant, that was the original, were going to be so diluted by the time it got to human breathing that it was below the threshold of what the EPA says you can breathe in. In Camden, it's right down the street. So it's incredibly potent. You can't make decisions like that and not think about the human element. Because we all deserve access to equally clean air, clean water, and fresh food. And when a community works together, such improvements can be achieved. Also a major lesson that I learned from Camden, something that I've really been living with since I went there, um, is that small changes in aggregate can be meaningful. So the things that you and I do, while they seem really small in the face of all these huge systemic problems, like how can something that I do change what's happening in Bangladesh? It can. We just all have to do it together. Um, and finally, meaningful experiences will, call lasting change, uh, will cause lasting change for individuals. Um, so hopefully after today, you'll be thinking about these sort of things when you go on. Um, hopefully it'll last a little bit longer than if you just thought, oh, I can cut my shower back a few minutes. Because then a cold day comes along and you're just like, no, I'm gonna stand here for a little bit longer. Hopefully after today, or hopefully if you ever have an experience like this, the change will be longer lasting. You'll talk to your friends, you'll empower them to do the same. Um, and that's when the change will really happen. Now what can you do? You can do a lot. Um, you can join CSA, which is a way to get the locally sourced vegetables sent to your dorm through sort of the meal plan system. Yeah, and so just CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, uh, which basically means that you, you're getting fresh local seasonal food. Um, we at Villanova here work with a farm, uh, Lancaster Farm, and they come once a week to for those who sign up and they drop off fresh produce. And it's not just vegetables and, and fruit, which is the standard, but this, this time around we're actually offering meat as well, so local meat uh, grown um, in a grass field or in a humane way uh, tends to be more nutritious and tastier. Uh, so that's something you're interested in. Look out for those emails. We just finished this season sign up, but um, the spring of, or the fall of next year we'll have another sign up. Um, you can buy local or fair trade. Villanova's a fair trade <coughs> university. A lot of our products that we have, especially at Holy Grounds, are fair trade products. Um, that means that the workers who contributed to making that brownie are living in, they have fair living wages, um, they have conditions, fair working conditions, and rights as workers, um, which is really significant. Yeah, and mostly you see that in chocolate, bananas, sugar, coffee, and tea. Mm -hmm. That's the majority of what you see that in. And clothing as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, we have clothing. Alta Gracia at the bookstore. Yes, definitely check it out. They're so soft too. Yeah. Um, so if it's broken, fix it. Um, you know, we always talk about, oh, when our grandparents were alive and the vacuum broke, they just took it to a guy and he fixed it for us. Nowadays, when something breaks, we get a new one. I mean, how many times have you like, dropped your phone and take it to the store and they give you a new one, right? I mean, that's, well, maybe you have to fight them a little bit to get the new one. But eventually, you get a new one. Um, but the idea is that if you continue this consumption process, and granted, companies are now feeding off of this. They make things so they break, so you have to buy a new one. Um, but reducing your consumption level drastically helps situations like this so we're not pushing this industry to go cheaper, 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 more, 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 instead of quality, less is more. Invest in companies that don't exploit others for profit, um, which leads to an organization called B Corp. Yeah, so, so B, B Corporation or B Corp is a certification, it's out of a company called B Labs, 
just makes it confusing. But anyways, they made this rating system for businesses to be certified as a sustainable, green, socially responsible business. And they have this huge survey that they have to fill out to be qualified. But they also, the big thing they have to do is they have to change their bylaws so that they are not only responsible for their shareholders, but they are also responsible for their employees, their consumers, their community, any other stakeholders that are relevant to the company. When they make a decision, it's not always just about, all right, how can I make profit for my shareholders, but also how can I do what, but good by my employees, by, by the people around me, um, which goes a long way. You can get involved in student groups. We have the Fair Trade Club here, also a community gardening club. And then there's Business Without Borders, Engineers Without Borders, and Nurses Without Borders. So if you're in any of those schools, there's a Without Borders club for you. It does a lot of really great work. They're pretty active organizations here on campus. And this is just a segment. I mean, there's a lot of other groups, too, if you're interested. Um, the sustainability website has a complete list of, of groups. Uh, turning off the lights when you leave your room. Uh, so we, like, we haven't been talking about energy at all, so this might seem a little weird. but. Energy, as we know, produces a lot of pollution, whether it's from coal, natural gas, even uh, nuclear power has some pollution um, components to it. And so by reducing our usage of these energy sources, we can reduce that pollution, which tends to happen in you know, poor communities. Um, and you can limit your ghost energy, which is the idea that when you leave the room, you might leave like your cell phone charger plugged in, or ladies with our hair straighteners, or whatever it is. Um, if you're not using something, you should unplug it because it will still be consuming energy just by being plugged in, even if it's not turned on. Yeah, the, the cell phone charges is a complete circuit once you put it into the wall, so it's always using electricity, even if nothing's plugged in. Um, one thing I do, because a lot of times there's things you don't think of, like, oh, I turned off my TV, but it has that little light on to tell you that it's plugged in or whatever. That is still using energy, however small it may be. Small steps equal large things. So what I do is I just have those those strips, those plug strips. I plug all of those entertainment things into one strip, and I just turn it off when I leave. I don't have to manually unplug all of them because there's a lot of plugs. Uh, but gaming consoles are a big one. Those use a lot of energy when they're not in use, even if they're like asleep. Computers, obviously, um, there's different rules. Is so okay, you're gonna be gone for 20 minutes, just put it to sleep as opposed to three hours, and you turn it off, type of thing. Um, but try to stay conscious of that. I know it's a lot to think about when we're busy. Um, but once you start these habits, it's real easy to, to keep up. And then just to wrap it up, um, Pope Francis, new guy over in the Vatican, had a quote recently. Um, he said, I would like to ask all men and women of goodwill, let us be protectors of creation, protectors of God's plan inscribed in nature, protectors of one another and of the environment. Which I think sort of brings it all in. Any questions? No. Did I bum you out? <laughs> so what are some good places to uh, buy clothing? Alta Gracia in the bookstore, they do a great job. That's good. Good stores. Mm -hmm. um, one I like is called Green Street. It's right down the street in Bar. They have a number of locations. Um, but especially like when you get older and you're a working professional and you need to find clothes that you know are working professional-esque, uh, they have a lot um, of really great stuff that's you know, looks good, it's fairly modern. Um, Green Street, I think. Green has a B e at the end, too. I think, like, one of the words is spelled you know, like, like, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's great. Um, there's also a co-op food store down in Bryn too. I think fairly close to where the Green Street is located as well. Uh, co-ops are good, they tend to be more locally sourced foods. 
It's like I have to like go to each door and knock on it, and I can't, I can't do that. Um, but now you know, and you should share it with your friends because it happens every springtime. Um, and if you ever are wondering when it's coming up, it's the sustainability website, which is villanova.edu/sustainability, um, or the dining website has information on it um, when it comes up. So you can always check there too. Um, just to we did the sustainability website, so it's all pretty. I really think of environmental justice as being something that's about empowerment. It's one of those things that the more you know, the more you talk about it, the more you engage in these sort of conversations on your own, um, the more potential there is for change. And by being here, you guys are working on that. So thank you for coming. And every little action like I think that's one of the hard parts for sustainability is people are like, I can't do anything because I don't build buildings, I can't save a whole bunch of energy, I don't have the power to change reg regulation, all that stuff. But you do have power. Like if you, if consumers did not want these things, they would not be made available to us. Um, so I know, you know, especially as college students, we don't have the income to pay, you know, three dollars more on a uh, container of coffee just because it's fair trade, but those little actions do add up. Um, and the more people who do it, the, the further down the price will go, so. Just for a plug for you guys, I think one of the small steps that you guys have done is the new shiny bins in the corner of this room. And yes, yes. Look, there is recycling in Connolly now. It's great, so you need to use them, because if you don't, we won't get more. Um, and as you notice in the rest of the building, there's not a whole lot of them. Um, so we are trying to increase recycling on campus, and for those of you who don't know, we do have a recycling coordinator on campus who coordinates all of our recycling efforts, and if you want to learn more about sustainability on campus, just check out the website. It's all, it's all new, it's hopefully not hard to find information. So, and if you have questions or ideas on sustainability or environmental justice, or if you want to learn more about anything we talked about today, my colleagues up here, I'm sure Megan will give you your contact instruction if you want it. And if you're interested in having the um, the PowerPoint that we showed today, yeah. I know it was hard to see. Um, just give us your email address. And you can send it. Thank you.